Blog Talk Radio. It's already done. It's the Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast with host Tyra Little. We're live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and causes on an open and raw level. We're unpacking emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical topics that influence and often control us. Get ready to unload, examine, and process. Let's get unpacked on Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, hello, and welcome to Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast. I'm your host, Tyra Little, and today we have with us Keisha Pearson, lecturer of education. As you know, for this month, our mental health professional is Capriche White, and our clergy member is Minister Margot Williams. So it's Tuesday. As you know, we transform Tuesday spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. So let's get unpacked. Keisha, I am so happy to have you on the show. I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy evening because I know you work full-time, you're a full-time mommy and a full-time wife. So um, I definitely appreciate you not counting this as robbery, making that sacrifice to get on and talk to the listeners today. So welcome. Thank you, Tyra. Um, Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right. Well, Keisha, I want you to let everybody know what does a lecturer of education do? Um, well, that's kind of the fancy title, um, <laughs> but truly I'm just a college professor. Um, I teach courses um, in the Division of Education, so I help prepare um, teacher candidates to be teachers in our classroom um, in our you know, for the future, and I also supervise student teachers. We call them teacher candidates in their various um, levels of field experiences. So from their first, where they gradually build and just um, experience and go in the classroom from one day a week to their second field experience, where they go in two days a week, and then to what most people commonly call student teaching, that full time where they go in every day for that semester. So I supervise them and mentor them. Okay, great. Well, I mean, Keisha, that's that's a big assignment. Um, I mean, that's really helping the teachers get their foundation. Um, so that's a huge assignment. It's not just a, a little that you're just, uh, you know, a professor, man. I mean, you, you, you have a huge assignment here, and I'm um, definitely happy and proud to have you on the show. Um, so tell me, um, is there, what, what type of, um, curriculum do you guys have for the student teacher candidates? Um, well, there are different, of course, components or different majors that our teacher candidates, um, can declare as what area in the field they want to go to from, um, I myself and my former second and third grade classroom teacher. So my major was in elementary education, which is where I'm certified to teach second through sixth grade. Um, But we have students who are early childhood um, education majors where they can teach child development through third grade um, elementary, like I just said. Um, So those two are really my specialty. Um, But of course, we have special education. Um, The college that I currently work at has um, middle level, if they want to teach middle level math, science, or social studies. And I do work with the social middle level social studies teacher candidates as well um, because they take um, a social studies strategies class that I take, um, that I teach. Um, but yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, the, um, the areas that students can certify. But it's a, it's a very um, strategic course sequence that the teacher candidates have to take. Um, They start off, of course, like any, you can remember being in college, for those of you um, who've been Mm -hmm. in college, having that University 101, we get the basics um, about the college and your general ed, 
um, classes. But then um, what, and then when they go from there, usually the spring semester of that first year, they start doing an um, intro to the professional teaching where we introduce them to what does this mean, this great profession that you're going into, what's this duty that we're, um, we're called to, what is lesson planning like, and then as they get into their sophomore year, they do educational psychology, developmental um, psychology, the psychology of the child, the brain of a child from birth through age 11, um, moral, moral and political foundations of education. There's some arts integration, a lot of literacy classes, um, even a course on careers in education. And it just builds up for, like I said, a lot of literacy classes because we know every teacher is a literacy teacher even if they're teaching science or social studies, and then all the strategies classes, math strategies, social studies, science, how to specifically, what are some strategies that can be used to specifically reach students to get them to enjoy these subjects as well as retain the information and not just regurgitate it the next day and then forget it the next week. Um, and that's more so for the elementary education majors, early childhood, has an even has all of those classes as well as even more um, developmental classes for the brain of the young young child. Okay, okay, great, great, great. Um, I heard you mention um, psychology, so I want to spin over to Miss Caprice. That's that's your area right there, expertise. Um, so I would love to hear. Um, your take or questions for Ms. Pearson on the psychology side of what they're being taught. Okay. So if I may, before I jump to the psychology side, Keisha, I just yes. have one personal question for you. Yes. Um, what made you want to be an educator? Mm. Um, that's a great question. I, My mother is an educator. Um, I can remember as her second um, career, when she started teaching first grade, she actually was in higher ed before education, which is ironic enough. But when she started teaching first grade, I started in the first grade. So I can remember that. So I had that connection with watching her teach. But I always ran away from, like everyone always asked at, at a young age, oh, you're going to be a teacher, just like your mom. And I ran away with it. But I can remember when I first fell in love with teaching was when I took a teacher cadet class in high school. And that was a class where we actually went into the field, went to an elementary school and observed and got was able to teach a lesson. And that was when I kind of knew, yes, even though everybody else saw what was in me. And I kind of mm -hmm. was like, nah, that's not it. But then I was like, yeah, this is what I'm destined to do. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. And then what? at what point did you decide to step outside of the classroom from the little ones to start training future educators? Um, it really wasn't a point where I decided. It really was God-ordained in his favor because it um, – I can remember starting off in the classroom always. I had a um, my college sweet mate and I, we actually graduated together in our, um, in the beginning, not our first year teaching, but second and third year teaching. We actually taught across the hall from each other. But she always said she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom with five children and homeschool them. And I always said, um, yeah, I'm going to have the family and all of that. But I always said, I'm going to always be in the classroom. Like, I didn't want to be in administration. I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to teach until I couldn't teach anymore. Um, and so that continued. But about, I started my higher ed journey as an adjunct professor around nine years ago. And um, it was just a conversation, just God's favor from someone um, at a football game, actually. Um, about, hey, would you like to, you know, you might have to tra you'll have to travel to Orangeburg, but would you like to teach a class, math strategies class? Um, and the first thing was like, I'm not qualified to do that. And she's like, yeah, you are. You just need this, this, and that. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. And I definitely fell in love with it then. But 
that was just me taking like one day a week. I would leave my regular classroom, my school, and take that commute and teach and come back home. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years until I had my son. Um, and then maybe about four or five years ago, I went back to the classroom. I stayed at home a year with my son because I felt like that was a critical age where I wanted to be home. Um, went back to the classroom. I had my daughter, and I decided I was going to stay at home with her. I didn't think anything else about it. I was just going to stay at home for a couple of years to take to put family first and, you know, be the helpmate for my husband and take care of my children. And I got a phone call. I can remember pulling in my garage. I got a phone call from um, who is now a colleague, but a former teacher of mine in higher ed and asked, hey, do you want to do some supervision of student teaching, you know, of teacher candidates? It won't be full-time. It'll just be a couple of teacher candidates. All you have to do is, you know, mentor them, observe this many lessons, meet with them. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. Um, that would be something I would love to do. And it just kind of every year was like, hey, would you like to teach a class? Or, hey, <laughs> would you like to add more? Or why don't you do this and do that? So it kind of just happened. It was a, a God-ordained thing and not anything that was in my life plan. Absolutely. And now that you are back in the full swing of things with your career, how are you balancing motherhood and marriage and career? Um, that's a great question. I love these personal <laughs> questions, Capriche. Um, I can definitely answer that. I heard um, Tyra say earlier that I'm full-time. Actually, I'm, not, I'm what we consider part-time. Three-fourths time is my full thing, and I said I wouldn't do full because my house, my husband comes first and my children come second. And um, so that's a big thing for me. Um, but the balance comes a lot with time management. I mean, my children now are older, older as in four and eight. But when I first started, like I was, I got up early, you know, got up at four or five o'clock and did my work, or when I put them to bed, I did my work afterwards. So finding that time management um, and balance and um, definitely learning that no is a complete sentence. Like right. it's okay to say no, and I don't have to explain why. If I wanted to, I can. Um, but learning to say no, um, my husband is a great support with me. He helps um tremendously with anything that is needed, but I also know that that is kind of my role to be his helpmate as well. Um, so saying no, I'm not all the way full-time, but I also am transparent with my um, my students um, mm -hmm. in my classroom within the first week. Um, we started classes this week, but I have a slide up of my family, and I let them know, and they respect it, and they they understand, but they also know that I'm still going to get back to them. But I have a slide with a picture of my family, and I say, this is why I'm here, and this is why I am not here. I'm here because of my family. This is an opportunity where it's more flexible than being in the full-time classroom. But I'm also not here because of my family. So just respect that no matter of when it's certain hours, like you can text me, I don't mind, you can call me, but you might not get a phone call until the next day or respect the mm -hmm. fact that um, technically I have 48 hours to get back to you. I'm probably going to get back to you within 12, but just keep that in mind. So I let them know that up front. So setting those boundaries. Hey, that's, that's okay. important. That's that's really good, and I'm glad you asked that, Capriche, because um, in all actuality, um, with you setting those boundaries, I'm pretty sure that that's something that you share with the teacher candidates, you know, because – those are tools that they're going to need in their life as they begin to, you know, maybe get married, start a family. Um, there are certain things that definitely need to be put into place. So, Capriche, I'm going to give it back to you, but I just really want to jump in there. Well, no, thank you, Keisha, because you just gave me some pointers. You know, I'm a newlywed. We're talking about having a family, and sometimes I just kind of get overwhelmed, like, okay, how am I going to balance it all back? You made me a little bit calmer, so, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, yes, you can definitely do it. Let me stop you right there. I can remember being in the classroom, um, in the elementary classroom, and there was um, 
a colleague of mine, and we were good friends, and she would be leaving so early, like I'm staying late and getting there early, and she was a phenomenal teacher, but she just knew, she was like, no, I'm getting out of here. Like, it's going to get done regardless, and there's always going to be something to do. But during those hours that she was there, she used that time wisely. Like, she wasn't in the copy room talking to people, or people came in and talked. She respected that, but she kept on working. Like, she used that time that she had more wisely. She worked smarter, you know, not necessarily harder. So, Definitely, you definitely can do it. And congratulations on being a newlywed. Thank you, thank you. All right, so now to the teaching stuff. Okay, <laughs> since you are a, a former second and third grade teacher, how do you feel about South Carolina's implementation of Read to Succeed? Um, I don't. Before I um left the classroom, that was coming into full effect where we had to get certified for Read to Succeed um, certification, take these extra literacy courses and learn more about it. Um, being a second and third grade teacher, I didn't feel um, negatively at all about it because that's what I was doing anyway, but I did feel like it was something learning the literacy behind teaching it's very important for everyone in education to know about, um, to be aware of. So on that side of things, I mean, I didn't feel negative about it at all. Now, how teachers feel now, I don't know, or I can't speak from that um, because I'm not on that front line anymore. I'm teaching, training teachers to be on the front line. So I really can't speak from it now since I'm not on the front line, but I had no no negative impact. Anything in specific, Capriche, like from the Read to Succeed that um, kind of how, yeah, how so, do you feel about it or what parts are you um, want more information about? So I, when I was in the elementary schools, I started to see an increase in um, evaluation referrals for students in the third grade, like right around October, mm-hmm. November-ish, um, when they start sending those letters that, you know, your child might be at risk of failing. And so I just kind of felt like, you know, this whole Read to Succeed thing is putting a lot of pressure on our teachers, <clears throat> excuse me, and then just kind of heightening their awareness just a little bit, um, just them feeling like, okay, this child is not grasping this objective, so something is wrong, as opposed to them just doing what they would normally do and just, you know, working slowly to build the interventions and see how the child progresses. Yes, I definitely agree with everything you just said. I almost feel like um, Minister Margot said this um, last week about COVID, um, the problems that we have in education. Mm-hmm. They were always there. COVID just magnified it. I think the problems that we had with reading and literacy in education were already there. Read to succeed just magnified it because it was that whole mandate third grade. If you're not on level, on grade level, you're going to automatically be um, retained. But that was already a problem in education, like literacy. I mean, for years, for decades, they've used fourth grade reading scores to determine how many prison cells to build. Oh, my God. I mean, that's been a statistic or been something that has happened, you know, for years. So, yeah, that is is a major problem, especially that the disparities of the races or the socioeconomic statuses of the people who aren't at um, grade level for reading. So I feel like Read to Succeed kind of magnified it, put like a spotlight on it, but it was always a problem in education. Um, so, wow. yeah, that's kind of can you can uh-huh. you repeat can you please repeat that again? You said they used the fourth grade. Please repeat that again. Yeah, I mean for years, um, I can remember learning this even when I was first started teaching, first starting out, that um there were lots of articles back then saying how fourth grade reading scores were what contractors or economic developers or whoever used to determine how many prison cells are needed. 
Wow. Um, <laughs> that, and that's fourth grade. Good. So we kind of put that at third grade for that reading, you know, to make sure the students are at level and to do the summer advancing um, and to focus on early childhood. But, yeah, I'll, I mean, that problem didn't occur overnight or with Read to Succeed. Mm-hmm. So we have to realize that that problem, you know, that solution is not going to happen overnight. Like, that's a big Learning to read and having those literacy skills is a big deal, and it really does take a village. It takes um, Capriche, the school psychologists, and the now the mental health counselors that are coming in now to help with all of that. Because just like your show, um, Tyra, it's not just one thing. You're looking at the social mm-hmm. or the emotional, the spiritual aspects. We've got to look at all of those things when we're thinking about um, our babies. That's a fact. That's a fact. Capriche, I don't know if you have another question, but I do have two callers on. Let me go to them and see if they have any questions, and then I can segue back to um, Minister Margo. So bear with me one second. I'm going to open the mic for caller. The last four digits of your number is 8946. Okay, I guess they did not have a question because they hung right up. So, caller 5375, if you have a question, I'm going to open your mic. If you don't have a question, it's okay for you to say you don't have a question. Hi, yes. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hi, everyone. I am a retired um, educator for Richmond One. I worked um, with special needs students. I taught kids with emotional behavior disorders, and the young lady prior to ask the question, and I'm just, for me to have wanted to be a teacher, I um, went to Columbia College. I wanted to be a social worker. Wasn't any job, so I ended up the alternative route to teaching. Fast forward to this, I'm in Newberry County, and I'm working with middle school kids, and none of these kids can read, and I couldn't understand it. And not only reading, I'm talking comprehension of vocabulary, so I went back and got my master's in curriculum and instruction and literacy to help um, with this need for our children. And as you stated, the need to succeed is, um, it's been there, but I think it's really political game right about now to say, because most of these initiatives in education normally come about because of an OCR complaint someone, their child didn't get the proper educational, and a lot of stuff spins off of special ed loans. I don't have it particularly, but I can almost, you know, give that a reason why. But the the intentions is not matching up with the curriculum or because, okay, everybody's in the building that's so like we, everybody wants to get and teach um, or have a literacy endorsement. But if the curriculum is not matching, we have a problem. Even the question I really have now is that since it's gotten a little out of hand with the pandemic, what is the state of teacher certification? Because they said we're having shortages now. Because at one time you had to be certified, you had to pass a test before you could do your student teaching. Now I'm reading different here in different states. They're trying to gather in and getting people as subs. So whatever mandate, because I'm not now, are we as, Educators, are we ready for if we should shut down right now or prepared to address these gaps in the education and the testing thing? And I noticed that because I did a part last year with some educators and I was explaining to the parents, you got to hold these teachers accountable. They're on here and they were really doing more talking at the kids and not having centered and where the kids was able to interact. The kids were tired. You know, they were bored. They All they did was copy and gave busy work. Now that they're in, I'm hearing my educators, my um, family members, they, oh, they have a spelling test. And I'm like, what's the purpose of a spelling test if you're not going to teach the rules, if you're not going to teach how to write a complete sentence and all of these things? And I'm not downplaying that you don't need spelling, but you can make it back in Richmond 1. What was the rigor and the relevance of it that's going to have them thinking some things? So my question is, where do you think or where do you see education in the future for teacher certification or certifying teachers? Not necessarily due to the pandemic, but, yes, 
just in general. Great question. First, before I get started, a few key points I heard. Um, before I even get started, I want to tell you thank you for your service to the children of South Carolina um, for all that you've done, especially in um, special ed. I know well, that you touched you. many lives, and that was a lot of work um, that you put in. So thank you for that, first of all. A um, few things I heard from you, um, you kind of addressed the teacher shortage. And yes, mm-hmm. that's a real a real problem. Um, Sarah, which is the Center for Education Recruitment, Retention, and Advancement, um, they do every year a yearly release of the teacher South Carolina teacher supply and demand. Um, and it, at the end of every year in December, um, they sent something out saying that they were about six thousand teachers from. Um, 2019 2020 school year that didn't return to teach in the same district mm-hmm. for the 2021 year. Um, and as of January, there were 700 positions that were vacant still um, in the um, state of South Carolina. And it even breaks down like who's leaving the profession or the position. The teachers with less than a year experience, two to five years of experience or five or more. So that definitely is a big problem, um, not just in South Carolina, um, that's nationwide, the teachers shortage. Um, so I did wanna um, kind of highlight that and bring that to the spotlight. The next thing you um, talked about was in higher ed, um, what is being done for the teacher education program or for our future teachers. Um, because of the read to succeed, now there are um, those same literacy classes have to be offered in the teacher education program versus just waiting um, to opt to see if you want the literacy endorsement or wait until you're in the classroom. So those additional courses have to be taught. Um, And then as a college supervisor, as well as um, the professor in the classroom, we're challenged where I am with the, with in, showing the innovative strategies, putting in that rigor and that critical thinking, um, teaching kids that metacognition, that, which is the thinking about their thinking. So teaching them how to think. Um, some of those buzzwords that we hear in education, and even if you're not in education, um, social-emotional learning and trauma-informed practices, all of those things are being embedded into our curriculum to let the teacher candidates know that yes, this is a job where, or um, where it's not, sometimes a student might not be able to get those phonemes or those sounds to put together because they've got things going trauma at home or triggers or this and that. So you have to look at it holistically and it takes that whole team within the building to figure out each individual student, like, well, why isn't such and such reading on grade level or isn't performing well? Is it because the teacher is not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Is it because of COVID and they lost this year? Or is it because he doesn't have anything, he or she doesn't have anything to eat at night or didn't eat yesterday? The only meal they get is at school. Or is it because they have to take care of their siblings? Like, or is it because they saw something traumatic um, happen to their parents or saw something on TV or didn't get enough sleep? Like, there's so many different reasons. And if they're emotionally, we know with brain research, that part of the brain, that amygdala that controls emotions, it can hijack the entire brain. So it doesn't matter how smart someone is or capable, if their amygdala has been triggered and they have all these emotions, then it takes Mm -hmm. over their logical sense of their brain. So we have to teach our teacher educators, um, our teacher candidates, all of this information so that they can help properly diagnose. Now, can they diagnose legally? No, that's why they have a team working with them. So really teaching them to get to the root of the problem with their students, to teach them the small group work where Um, you have 20 kids in your class or more, you can't teach that one lesson and expect for it to get to all 20 kids. Like, you're going to have to break that up and do small groups. So, like I said, as higher education educators, those are the things that we're teaching 
our teacher candidates. Wow. Wow. That's good stuff, Ms. Pearson. That's good stuff. Um, I want to go ahead and um, allow Minister Margo, um, because as we know, Minister Margo um, is actually in the classroom as well. Um, so anything that you have for, for Keisha, Minister Margo? First of all, I want to say thank you um, to Keisha and the caller that um, we have because you know, when you come into the field of education, if your heart is not committed to wanting to see children grow, mm-hmm. you have failed, and I believe that you should do something else. And so it's very critical. The caller made some comments that um, I really believe are head on. And she talked about a little bit about of um, as it pertains to I can't remember it's it's escaped my mind now, but what it made me do was think about exactly when you're taking read to succeed what it's really doing for you as an educator mm-hmm. because I was certified through the an alternative path called pace. And paces for those individuals who did not major in education in undergrad. And so what the Department of Education does, they will look at your um, transcript and determine what area or what areas you have so many hours in so that you can become certified in those areas. And then they work with you for three years to gain um, much of the theory and those types of things, you know, behind education. But when I took Read to Succeed, it was a very, at first I did not see a lot of value in it because my certification is in career and technication. I was a uh, double business major. And so I really, to be honest with you, at the beginning, I was like, now, I just don't know how this is going to be that productive for me to take. So I took it because I was required to take it. But in the course of taking it, what I was reminded of was some of the basic things that are so critical to every classroom. And what I mean by that is it requires you to think outside the box to consider every opportunity that you have to fire these children to want to read and to challenge and to guide them in their reading. So after I took it, I started working with my lesson plans and I made it, I tried to make reading more fun. And I went up to my son's room and I looked on his bookcase I grabbed all of these books that he loved to read when he was in middle school because he was an avid reader. And I added those to my classroom library so that I could utilize these things because I wasn't thinking beyond really um, the extent of what my knowledge had been. Mm. But read to succeed will make you sensitive. Like for me, I have many children who are from other other countries in my classroom. So I am intentional to make sure I have materials in my room that can identify with each child that's there, not just the child that looks like me, but all of the children that are in my room. And so I believe as a, really, I'm a computer science teacher. So I try to develop that curriculum so that it will look like our people, meaning everybody that's represented, but also I try to give activities that we can work with together to help to influence better reading and writing because what the the caller was talking about, the kids not being able to write, I think, sentences or paragraphs, and she's exactly correct because I kept trying to figure out why is it when it's time for us to work on essays together in computer science 
Nobody writes a structured sentence accurately. Wow. And so all of this literacy, it comes together because this has been a major problem. But, you know, a lot of our children who, it's not just those children who are in an impoverished situation or special needs. I'm seeing it pretty much across the board. And I I do have my own suspicion as to why um, illiteracy is what it is right now. And um, and I'll say this, and I, I my question, I guess, to you, Keisha, um, if whether or not this is addressed. But there seems to be a problem with the amount of computerized work that is being done, as well as the amount of time that um, children are allowed to have screen time during um, what I would call entertainment. So do you think that's the correlation area that we have, um, you know, with, with literacy and what can be done or if whether or not it is addressed in the teacher education program? That is a great question. And I do personally, and there's some research to back it up as well, think that that is a correlation. I don't, I think the correlation more so is with, the screens and the video games, but it, it's not really, I don't think them having all those screens at school came first. They had that at home, you know, so mm-hmm. educating parents mm-hmm. about how screens have changed the brains of our children. Um, mm-hmm. They've made them less attentive, definitely. They've made them kill, I mean, the best way for me to put it, for a lack of a better term, that some brain cells have been killed because of this. Mm-hmm. They haven't had that creative thinking to go outside and play or get a cardboard mm-hmm. box and make this out of it, which mm-hmm. helps them be creative writers as well. So there are a lot of different things. But I think the screens came into the classroom more so because the brains of the children were already changed. So we were trying to figure out, innovative techniques to play off of what they what they like to do or what they're so used to doing because we're competing kind of sitting up doing this so it was like that balance it, it was that balancing act like well let's put in some kind of um, technology to get them activated or interested initially before we go back to board games or let's do some kind of brain breaks where they can get moving and see somebody on the screen do something and do it with them or play certain music. So we needed to use that technology because they were already using it and their brains were used to using it. But now it's a matter of that balance of technology. And I love Mm -hmm. how somebody said last week, I think Minister Margo, you said it um, possibly, but I don't like putting COVID as an excuse for everything, but facts are facts. COVID did force us to go straight virtual, straight technology for at least, you know, that first six months for some, a year for others. So that was something that we couldn't avoid. But now that we're kind of going a little bit of hybrid or dual modality where they still have to use it. But now as educators, we've got to learn that balance of -hmm. how to use it, when to use it, use it for our advantage, for the good versus constantly using it over and over um, because it is taken away from even the books, the books on certain websites that are read to you. You know, we know children need to be read aloud to. That is true. But they mm-hmm. also need that paper and pencil, that traditional book mm-hmm. in front of them as well. So we just have yeah. to learn um, and teach and educate, not just our teacher candidates, but our community and our parents. Right as well, that there needs to be a healthy balance. Mm-hmm. Well, I have another question. I'm very curious because whenever we get, um, when t- when teachers are opening their classrooms to coach the, um, the college students who are coming in for their, um, what do you call it, practical teaching or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, what I have noticed is that many of them are very shocked about what they have really 
signed up to do. You know, before they're done, many of them are telling me that I don't think that I want to teach. And, you know, I go into these questions like um, what is it that is causing you to think you don't want to teach since you've been here, you know, so many weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it just seems as if many of them are not prepared for the behavior situations. They're not prepared for the, I think, the culture in the classroom for the children who will be the ones that will challenge the teachers rather than just the ones who are obedient. So my question to you would be, how are those types of things addressed in the classroom with the um, undergraduate teachers um, before they are released to do practice teaching? Great question. There's a course that um, all teachers, all teacher candidates usually um, around the state, uh, I know in lots of different um, on college campuses, so I'm assuming that it's probably all college campuses that have education um, programs where they do take some kind of foundations of classroom management techniques, and they learn all of these things. But the problem is that you can read it on a book, in a book, or hear about it, or hear these case studies, what would you do? But until you get that true experience, that's really the best teacher. So Mm -hmm. we can teach them about it. Um, one thing that years ago, probably about 19 years ago when I started in higher ed, um, there was a program that um, the name of it was PALS, where I was approached to help mentor first-year teachers um, or within that first five years because we know that's when if we don't, you know, by the first five, a lot of teachers quit or go to another profession. Um, so I really think that the beyond the program because we can teach mm-hmm. you get these you get these three um field experiences three different classrooms um at my institution it's in three different districts for experience it's in three different grade levels so they get to see some of these things but mm-hmm. then it's another thing when they're have to tackle it on their own so the mentor programming um i think has to go beyond um, just, hey, I'm your mentor, um, I'll check in on you once a month. Like somebody really does need to hold their hands and help them through that first year and go through the situation. Some funding needs to go towards that. Um, I can tell you um, at my institution, I have two colleagues, and that's something that they've done. Um, they ask, as our teacher candidates are graduating, they always invite them back and they have like monthly meetings with them. It's been on Zoom lately, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but just listening to what kind of problems do you have? What are the things that are overwhelming you? How can we help mm-hmm. you? Um, so trying mm-hmm. to have those, you know, this is not anything they're getting paid for. This is something the way they saw yeah. the need. But having some of those programs or some of those mentors, I mean, taking it back to the tightest two women, where the older are supposed to teach the younger, somebody, they need somebody to be with them to help them through. Even from my experience, my first year teaching was, um, gave me, I felt like 10, 15 years of experience because I had so many issues, so many problems, Mm -hmm. but I persevered and stuck through. And a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. have, we don't have that perseverance anymore. Mm, yeah, that's my personal take on it. Right. Um, and yeah. also, Margo, I heard you say about being like culturally sensitive and behavior. So there's also, yes, we're um, teaching our students, our teacher candidates to have that cultural relevance in the classroom, to yeah. acknowledge different cultures, to let them see that in their libraries, to let them see that in their lessons, to put that in their lessons. Um, so that's something that we definitely um, try to address as well. But it's yeah. hard. Teaching is a hard perfect Like mm-hmm. you, there's a lot to do. So when you get with all this knowledge and you've got it, you're eager, you're ready, and then you go into the classroom and you've got to do this, 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 this lesson plan, this meeting, this, this. Some of that stuff gets dropped and falls mm-hmm. down, and you just fall in with. Well, if everybody else is doing it traditionally, even though I've taught, I've been learned, it's 
it takes more time to do things the right way. So even yeah. when I taught to do it the right way, I fall in the trap of, but this is what everybody else is doing, and it makes it easier for me to do that. So it's almost a survival mode for these um, teachers. Wow. Okay. Wow, that's really good. We have a, a caller. Um, I'm getting ready to open up their mic. The last four is four four zero zero. Caller four four zero zero. Do you have a question? Hi, it's Freddie. Yes, I do have a question. Um, Hi. I want to first say thank you all to each one of you all for all the knowledge and the transparency that you have provided pertaining to our education system. And I thought um, Minister Mago did a, a good segue for my question because one of the things that I am passionate about is just the essence of community um, in all areas of our lives. And I feel like with education, there are times where even as parents, we think of it as a silo. And what I mean by that is the teachers, yes, they are there to teach our kids. And Keisha hinted on it, Ms. Pearson um, hinted on it to say that, you know, they have to deal with so many other things that at times they have to go in survival mode. So Mm -hmm. one of the questions I have, and how do we enhance the mindset of community when it comes to education, Mm -hmm. meaning the education doesn't start when your child gets in the classroom. It starts at home. And we as Mm -hmm. parents, how do we assist in making that child a well-rounded child so that when they get in your classroom, you, you, you have less of a burden to deal with the behavioral issues or the, uh, you know, other issues that they may bring in that may strip away or take away from the time that can enhance the education aspect of it and challenge them more educationally um, rather than having to deal with the behavioral issue. Because I, I had firsthand um, experience that last year, and, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, because I haven't been in that um, arena before. So to have to mm-hmm. experience it with my own child first firsthand based on the ones around her, I think it's very important that we, we shift our mindset to a community-based education. I'm, and I want to know, how do you think we can get there? You know what? I don't know exactly who you have that question for, but I, I want to jump in just for a second. And then everybody on a, you know on here on the platform has the opportunity. Um, but, Freddie, one of the things that I feel that is very important with the community base is having forums like this right here. And what I really also think is that COVID (laughs) taught a lot of parents who was taking teachers for granted um, a lesson because those kids had to be home and you had to figure out how to help them do their schoolwork while they're online with their teacher and you're over here doing your job. You know, there were so many times where I would see that even though, you know, People were doing it, you know, trying to laugh out of a situation to keep from crying. But, you know, hey, tell us about your coworkers, calling the children their coworkers. You know, you saw some of the different things that was going on where people was like, okay, the teacher just got expelled because they done beat the student. You understand what I'm saying? Because it was mm-hmm. it was different. It exposed them to a real live classroom at home, and it also helped them to see, my God. I don't want to homeschool. Now, there are some people who are very good at homeschooling, and I am not knocking that. Um, Everybody has not been given that measure. And so for those who send their children to school every day, I feel like that time span taught them a lot because me, myself, I had to be the substitute teacher one day for my grandson, you know, and it was hard trying to tell him, you know, hey, can I play this? No, you cannot play the game. You're in school right now. From this time to this time, this is what you're going to be doing. So I need you to go in here and read this book. I'm going to test you on it, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was it was a learning curve that was hit for everyone unexpectedly. Um, And so in settings like this, we do have to figure out how to help make parents more concerned, um, not just the parents, but the community, because you may not have a child in school right now, but just like I said last week, you pay property taxes somewhere, and you're paying them to some district. And if we don't begin to get a grip and to go back to the community base of helping each other. It takes a village to raise a child and really mean that and not get mad even when Minister Margo and I had a conversation about how, because I know with my grandson, 
before COVID, I would always volunteer. I would go in, I would read, help the teacher out. But you have so many parents that want to believe everything that their children are saying, and they don't want to work with the teacher. It's like working against. And that's, that's not helping anybody, you know? So we have to get to a point to where we learn how to communicate effectively as a community. I'm going to turn the panel over to, I don't know if Minister Margot wants to, who, who wants to jump in on that? I, I will jump in on that because that is a concern that I have because um, I grew up in a community that had a very high regard for education and educators. The educators of my time were people who were committed to the children um, with time, with their resources, all sorts of things. And so we, when we entered the classroom, there was respect. There was not this adversarial type of thing. So being a teacher in the classroom today seems so much, and it has um, made me many times wonder what happened for parents and children to feel as if their teachers are literally, I hate to say it, but it's almost as if many of them feel that we are the adversary. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to find, I've had to remind teachers, not teachers, but parents sometimes that, one, I'm teaching because I want to teach, and two, I'm teaching because I love children, and I feel that I have a purpose in helping them. Now, many times when little Johnny is not doing well, the first thing that parents will do they will begin to say that the teacher has not done something or they will just listen to what little Johnny says without truly listening. And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in a time where if I told my mother or my dad that a teacher didn't do something or they were whatever, they would ask me the same question probably five or six different ways to make sure that what I was saying was true Mm -hmm. because I was a child. And this same thing holds true today. I just don't believe there are that many teachers who are teaching who have a nefarious attitude about what they're doing and, and you know, the children. Mm -hmm. So I believe that when it comes to being the community, I believe a lot of it has to do, it filters down no matter what organization you're in, whether it is a secular or spiritual church, whatever relation, whatever organization you're in, leadership, the way that organizations are led, people within the organization honor and follow the leadership. So when, when there's one way that perhaps administrators see things, and then there's the other way that people in the classroom, the teachers see things, there is a disconnect. Mm-hmm. You know, I typically, and I, and this is how I share with other teachers, I tell them, I said, I do things the old-fashioned way, knee to knee, eyeball to eyeball, and I just basically explain to parents who, you know, might be upset, whatever, might be misunderstood, feel like I misunderstand whatever, how I handle it is I tell them, I say, listen, I understand. I see what you're saying. However, and I use personal testimonies to let them know that you're supposed to protect your child and cover your child, but you're not. you're not supposed to do it at the expense of what's not true because that has been a major problem in many classrooms because I've had my colleagues tell me that kids have said, you better not tell me this, you better not do that, or my mama or my daddy or such and such, and they're boasting about this. You know, I've I've had students to tell me sometimes, I really don't care about that because my mom don't care. 
So when you have that type of thing, I believe that this is where administrators and district um, personnel can be very resourceful. I believe that there should be literally a parenting class or meeting or um, series of meetings of expectations. Because, and I believe that it must consistent mm-hmm. because this is a partnership. It is a partnership between that classroom, what's going on with that teacher, and that school and that household. And I just believe that there must be opportunities where people can understand that we do understand your challenge. However, we cannot see our children as in a position that there always are going to be this little this baby that I have to cower over because these children have to grow up and they have to take responsibility and much of that they learn in the classroom and mm-hmm. they learn it in how they are respectful to their peers as well as to their teachers so i think that when we have like you said forums like this i think also when we have opportunities for community professionals to be to volunteer in the school in various ways. Right. And even those people who aren't the professionals, but perhaps they are um, a, in some type of blue-collar um, work capacity, they need to see them, too, being respectful citizens that come in who are concerned because so that that community thing is so broad and we cannot in the classroom or in the school even believe that everybody is going to have the same path. There are some children who are going to be entrepreneurs. There are some that are going to go to a factory and work. There are some that are going to go to college and go beyond. But I think that to really bring, make it a community effort again, we've got to go back to some of the grassroots. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, you guys, this has been really good. Um, we are <laughs> we're down. I'm we only sorry. have like three minutes. We... Wait a minute, hold on, hold on, Capri. Hold on, Caprice. Okay. We only okay. have three minutes left. So Caprice, I'm gonna let you um add what you need to add and then I wanna go back um to Keisha with what she would want her takeaway to be from this. So go ahead, Caprice. Okay. So I totally agree that this has to be um, a collaborative effort to get our students where they need to be. Now, Ms. Margot, I understand your perspective as a teacher, but being a neutral party, I've heard both sides. So I've been in situations to where the parent would call me frustrated because sometimes they don't hear anything about what's going on at the school until it's something wrong, right? Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times, a lot of times you have parents that work a lot, a lot, excuse me, um, and may want to be contacted via email or text, and they're not getting that communication from the teacher. I've had parents that have contacted the teacher, hey, I see my child is struggling in this area. What can I do? But with no follow up. Um, even in meetings, I've witnessed. I try to say, okay, before we meet, let's have one strength, you know to say about this child before we just <laughs> before we just snowball with everything that is going wrong. So it has to be, you know, a collaboration on both sides because mm-hmm. without the parents yeah. and without mm-hmm. the teacher, our students are going nowhere. So I just wanted to kind of add right. the parent perspective sometimes, at, you know, at some point. Sorry. That, was, that was good. That and was you good. know, that is good because did. that's mm-hmm. very true. Because mm-hmm. there again, it is a partnership. You know, because they're very. Because when you really sit down and dig into that, you find out things on both sides that right. need, you know mm-hmm. that need to be um, listened to, that need the attention. So, thank you so much for speaking for the parents. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was really good because even and what you said, Minister Margo, that I really like was the partnership. And it has to be a buy-in at the beginning of the year. And I really think that's a good idea um, to where, you know, 
as we all know, it's the way that you present things that's going to make a difference um, mm-hmm. for that for that school year. Um, I think it would be a good thing to have some type of sit down with the parents, um, you know, maybe at the beginning because it'll get to a point to where you may not can do it um, as many times as throughout the year, but just to let them know, hey, you know, this is a partnership here, but all parties have to make sure that they're doing their part, you know? Um, Keisha, I'm going to let you um, give us your your first, what, what do you want to, as a takeaway from, from the show today, or if there's anything else that you would like to add before we close out? Um, I think Minister Margaret, Minister Margot, excuse me, and Capricia, just to bow tie what they just said will be a great um, takeaway that, um, as the caller said, we have to enhance that mindset of community. But in order to have a community, there needs to be a relationship and unity. Mm-hmm. So it's a reciprocal thing to where the the teachers do have to realize, um, well, I'll start with the parents. The parents have to realize that um, teachers are trying their best. They're balancing so many different things. All the kids in the classroom, teachers, their own lives, their own mental health, parents and administrators, both. Mm -hmm. But then the reciprocation of teachers have to remember that no matter what, no matter what situations they have, um, parents truly are sending their best child to school. And they are doing either what they think is best for their child what they um, or the best that they can do. So mm-hmm. we both as with this partnership or this community building have to understand and have a respect for each other. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe one way to do that, of course, is with relationship, um, but then also the unity in terms of um, going back to the caller's question we have to start educating everyone. Like Minister Margo said, educating the parents. And it might not be a traditional, sometimes it will be a traditional sit down type thing, but even through as many avenues as we can, educate our parents about the fact that the education of a child starts either at or before conception based on what Mm -hmm. what that parent is doing, what they're eating, what they're reading, what they're putting in their psyche what they're watching, their mindset, their mm-hmm. mental state, all of that Absolutely. starts with the education of the child. So starting from there to educate them, not beat them up, um, but right. truly mm-hmm. educate them. So mm-hmm. I guess that will be um, to sum it up, but a big takeaway from um, today's show. Hey, that's that's really good. Um, Minister Margo, you have any mm-hmm. anything else you want to? Okay. No, I think that I've said all that um okay. that I wanted to say because I do believe that it, it is a partnership um with the school and and with the parents and when we come together powerful things happen. Amen. Miss Capriche. Yes, um I just wanted to just close out by saying to our listeners, um if you're a parent or if you're a teacher and if you're having, you know, issues with communicating with each other, just know that there are other people in your building that can help bridge that gap, such as a guidance counselor, a school psychologist, social worker, um, secretary, anybody. Um, so just reach out to us on either end, and we can help and assist in the best way we know how. That's, that's good. That's good. Well, listeners, um, you've asked, and we're going to have a – Part two, um, Jamie Devine, president of the South Carolina School Board Association, has agreed to come back again next week. So please, listeners, share with your other teachers, colleagues, um, educators that he will be on. Um, I'm going to ask that you limit your questions, you know, make your question direct as to what it is. We don't need a whole dialogue for you to get to your question, but we need you to ask that question so that other people will have the opportunity to call in and to ask their questions as well. So, um, Ms. Pearson, I thank you so much um, for coming on. I think we've covered a lot today. Um, I definitely learned a lot um, because, hey, education is not my area of expertise, but 
Um, it is a passion of mine because, again, I believe that the children are our future. And so I have to support whatever initiative or whatever platform that can be provided to help the teachers as well as to help the children. So I thank you all for being on. This is Pressure Points Unpacked, and I'm your host, Tyra Little, and we will see you next week with the president of the South Carolina School Board Association, Jamie Devine. It's already done.